Good evening. My name is Bonnie and I am an alcoholic. Hey, I'd like to tell you that I'm nervous. I'm not nervous, but I am, as you can tell. Um, I went from being petrified to anxiety attacks to being nervous. And I heard a tape today, and a gentleman said he was nervous when he spoke for a long time until he realized God was always holding his hand no matter what he did. And I'd like to tell you that thought made me not be nervous at all. Well, it calmed me down to butterflies. Someone once said, if you're nervous when you get up your talk, that's God shaking the truth out of you. I don't know whether I buy that or not. For me, I'm nervous because when I get up here, I'm supposed to tell you in a general way what Bonnie Karen was like, what happened to Bonnie Karen and what I'm like now. And I don't really like to do that because that means I've got to trust you enough to share a part of me with you. And I'm an alcoholic and I'm not a real trusting person. I have to learn to trust. And to share part of me, to give you part of me is not an easy thing to do. And it makes me a little nervous. And I'll admit to that right off. I've also been accused of being a little preachy sometimes. And sometimes I think I get that way with this program. Because this program saved my life. You know, my mother and father are both ministers. And I was raised up in a household of ministers. And I always wondered when all this controversy went off lately. I went and I asked my father, who is now retired, I said, Dad, what makes the difference between a good minister and a bad minister? He said, well, it's like this. He says, if you go and hear an excellent minister, you find out if they're paying that guy. And if they're not slipping him any money, and he's fantastic and he's vibrant, you got a real good indication he believes everything he's saying to you. If they're paying him, you can always wonder whether he's saying it for the cash or whether he really believes it. Well, I'll tell you tonight, I'm not getting paid. I really do believe everything that I'm going to tell you this evening. I am not an alcoholic because I was raised in a dysfunctional family. My family was very functional, thank you. I am an alcoholic because I drank too much and the actions and reactions to my drinking caused my life to be in a horrible mess. Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking psychiatrists or counselors or anything like that. The big book tells me that there are times when there are other problems than alcoholism and I need these people. What I don't believe in is the dysfunctional family theory and I'll tell you why right off the bat. According to them, I don't know of one family in the United States today that isn't dysfunctional. And I believe this program of Alcoholics Anonymous is for those of us who are alcoholics, not want to be alcoholics. I am totally amazed at how many people in society want to be alcoholics. When they told me I was going to be an alcoholic or I was an alcoholic, that's the last thing I wanted to hear. I was not beating down the doors to get in and join you people. As I said, I was raised in the home with ministers. I'm not an only child. I have an older sister. I was raised in the mining towns. Alcohol was not a part of my family life. I do remember laying at night and listening to the honky-tonk down the street and thinking what wonderful music came out of there and how much fun those people must be having. And I often wondered why we never went there. But being a good child, I never asked too much. I had a normal childhood, as most normal childhoods go. My parents did the best they could with what they had at that given time. They loved me. They took care of me the best they could. And I went on about growing up. When I did start to drink, I drank to make my life manageable. My life had become unmanageable. I had so much pain inside of me. You've heard the story of the hole in the soul. I didn't have a hole in the soul because I'm not too sure I had a soul by then to have a hole in. I drank 
because my life was unmanageable and the alcohol made it manageable. It made the pain go away. It made the hurt go away. It let me be who I wanted you to think I was. It didn't make me who I wanted to be, just who I wanted you to think I was at that given time. My problem developed when that alcohol no longer let my life be manageable. When you drink, and I drink, and I drink, and the pain's still there, and I can no longer be anybody. I always wanted to be top of the heap, number one, the best. And that's what I strived for through all my years. I always wanted to be the upper crust. And you know, I didn't know this until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and heard it that the upper crust is nothing but a bunch of crumbs held together by a bunch of dough. <laughs> well, I kind of fit the first part. I might have been a little crummy, but I sure didn't have all the dough. But I wanted to be that upper crust. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the one that was noticed, the one that stood out. But I didn't want to have to do anything to get there. I wanted it all given to me on a silver platter. Because growing up had been easy for me, so therefore life should be easy for me. Life wasn't easy for me. I married young, not real young, but young. I married into an alcoholic marriage. I did all the things that good Al-Anons do. I hid the keys. I covered at work. And then I drank with him. And then I drank at him. And then I learned to drink real good. I went to work for a illustrious division of our government called the United States Navy. And the big boys taught me how to drink like a big boy because if you're going to play with the big boys, you drink like them. You work hard, you play hard. And people just kind of look at me like I'm a little off my rocker. My drink of choice is a Mai Tai followed by a Boilermaker Chaser. And I still think that is the most elegant way to drink. You satisfy the lady in you with the Mai Tai, and you satisfy the big boy in you with a Boilermaker Chaser. What better way to get drunk? What better way to end the pain? What better way to make a fool of yourself? That marriage ended with an accident. I woke up in intensive care in one of our naval hospitals, and I wasn't sure whether I was dead or alive. By that time, I had achieved everything I thought I wanted. I had three beautiful children, a husband. I was on my way to a recording contract. And I felt top of the world. And in one moment, one drunken, angry moment, all that came crashing down. Thirty days in intensive care, and they took the bandages off and the tubes out. And they looked in the mirror, and they said, you look fine. And I looked in the mirror and didn't know who was looking back at me. And I can tell you the utter sense of feeling bewildered, of feeling lost, of feeling so totally unknown and unwanted came over me at that instant that I decided I would never hurt again. And the best way to handle that is when you start to hurt, you drink. And you drink a little bit more and then you feel remorse in the morning because you drank the night before. And then you heard a little bit more. And I had a real dear friend who said, Listen, this marriage is over, but you still have to deal with a lot of things. Why don't you go back to Al-Anon? You see, I had been introduced to all of you in 1976 by the courtesy of a doctor named Dr. Joe Kirsch, who had started a rehab program for the United States Navy. They had sent my husband there. And as a good, faithful wife, I went along, too, for the family program. And I always got tickled at Dr. Kirsch, and someday I'll be able to shake his hand and tell him thank you. Because he planted the seed, I'm sure God sent him to plant that seed. 
after talking to me one day, he said, Honey, don't ever pick up that first drink or you'll be in the rooms with us. And I really didn't quite believe him. But the man was right. You know, I guess it takes someone to spot an alcoholic to set him straight, and it didn't set me straight then. But this friend knew that I knew about Al-Anon, and they sent me back to Al-Anon. And I sat in the Al-Anon rooms, and I listened, and I listened, and I listened. And I was telling some people today that it was one of those glorious blame-it-on sessions when you get a group of newcomers who sit around and want to blame all their problems on their husbands. And one young girl was talking about how horrible her husband was, the way he drank, how miserable it was. And the thought crossed my mind, what do you have to complain about? I drink that way. That's not how an alcoholic drinks. If you had been in my place... So I went to someone and I said, do you know what I heard? I heard da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And that's how I drink. And how dare they say... They stopped me real quick and they said, Sweetheart, why don't you, next meeting night, come up and sit in our room? If you can relate to what's being said and you can understand the feelings that are coming across, there's a real good chance you belong up here with us. Now, I'm going back to this people who want to be an alcoholic. The last thing I wanted to do was come up here and sit with you alcoholics. Now, by this time, I knew that you weren't the little bums out on the street. By this time, I knew that most of you were living fairly decent lives. But just the thought of that brand. You know, I didn't want somebody to put that big A on my forehead and make me walk around town. I was scared to death of what my boss would think. But my boss knew that I tied one on with all the other bookkeepers on Friday night anyway. I mean, they saw me drunk. It's no big deal. I tried that room. And I stayed in that room. And this program of Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. And I did get preachy about it. Because I don't like people messing with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. To me, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is the way it was written down in the first 164 pages of the big book. Everything I need to know is right there. When I decided to come in these rooms with Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, get a sponsor. I picked the meanest-looking person I could find at the end of that table, a fiery redhead who had a temper to go with it. And bless her heart, she knew where I was coming from. She sat and talked to me for a whole day. I don't even remember if we ate that day. I know we drank a lot of coffee. And at the end, she says, do you have a big book? I said, yeah. She said, give it to me. I gave her my big book. She ripped out the first 164 pages of that big book and handed it back to me and threw the rest in the trash can. And she says, honey, this is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is what you're going to work with. When you're ready to try to relate to the stories in the back, I'll buy you a new big book. I thought the audacity of this woman. But do you know, this woman sat down with me and said, this is the way we're going to do it, and we aren't going to play around. Let's get busy with steps one, two, and three. Have you done them? Yes. Let's go over them. And she did. And she said, now let's go to step four. I said, I don't want to do step four. Now, she wasn't one of these, we'll do step four when you're ready. She says, we're going to do step four, and you're going to be back here next Saturday. The guys are all going down to work in the field and chop the trees, and we're going to do step five. I did that inventory to the best of my ability. I did it the way the book said to do it. And I was scared. And I felt like a load was lifted off of me. And this sponsor got me into service work real quick. Now, at this time, I was in the state of Florida. And they do things a little differently down there than what a lot of people are used to. And um, she believed in hauling me off immediately. We went to halfway houses. We went to slum meetings. 
and I did unusual things. I was given the honor and the pleasure of cleaning out ashtrays. And when I was well enough, they gave me the honor and the pleasure of picking up coffee cups. Now see, I thought I was ready to go straight to handing out chips or something. And somewhere along the line, they thought I needed to clean up ashtrays. I look back on that now as a healing process because it's some of those old-timers who stay around and clean up ashtrays, too. It was then that I learned the certain little gems, the experiences, the strength, and the hopes that these older people in the program shared. The one-on-one. You know, when I came into this program, I was in pretty bad shape mentally. Now, let's get real honest. I was in real bad shape mentally. I could go to work. I could function. I could clean a house. But see, when I had my accident, they rebuilt part of me. And sometimes the little things up here, there's a lady in AA, Peggy, um, that talks about how these little things talk to these little things. And she says a lot of people who mess around and they're real bad alcoholics, sometimes when they go, they go like this and they don't connect. Well, my little things still talk to my little things, but they couldn't connect. And they had to find new paths. And I'd be eating and pick up a fork and couldn't remember if I was picking up the fork or putting the fork down. When I came out of that 30 days intensive care, I could not talk. I had severed one vocal cord and damaged another one. And they told me if I whispered, for the rest of my life I would be lucky. I still stutter sometimes when I get real nervous and it's real high anxiety. People who know me real well catch me real quick and calm down, what's bothering you? You know, I read a statement the other day. It said, I am the biggest monster and I'm also the brightest miracle that I've ever seen in my life. And that's how I feel about myself. But my little things don't talk to my little things sometimes. And I get off on tangents and I go here and there. And my sponsor knew that. My sponsor understood. So she laid down things I could do, basic things. And she would call me in the morning and say, what are you wearing to work? Have you put supper out? Did you make sure to pack your husband's lunch? And after a while, these things got a little monotonous. And I finally went to her and I said, why do you call me all the time with this simple stuff? And she says, oh, you must be getting better. You're getting angry enough to come ask me. If you ask me, that means you remember. If you remember, you must be getting better. I felt I was getting better. And I got transferred. The whole family got transferred. And I came to an area where sobriety was different. Now, for those of you who live in one area, get sober in one area, and have your roots ripped out from underneath of you, and you go to a new meeting and it's all together different in that area, hang on, you'll find the right meeting, don't give up. It's there somewhere. See, I wanted to give up when I couldn't find the same thing I'd had in Florida. I wanted to give up completely, but I didn't. I had enough people in my life who wouldn't let me. And I'd like to tell you that I moved to this area we went to, and life was rosy and kind. Everything went well. I developed such magnificent knowledge of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but that's not quite true either. I kind of flitted from sponsor to sponsor. Have you ever heard of a sponsor butterfly? You know? They're the ones of us who split from sponsor to sponsor to sponsor to sponsor because we really can't find what we're looking for, what we had before, that relationship, that knowledge, whatever. And then I got into the educated meetings. I was an alcoholic. I went to AA. I was married to a recovering alcoholic. I needed Al-Anon. I came from a dysfunctional family to so this, this other person over here. 
sent me to ACOA. Do not get me started on ACOA. They sent me to Weight Watchers. They sent me here. They sent me there. And all of a sudden, my insides started going, mm. And I felt pulled a hundred different directions. And I didn't know which way I was going or coming. Now I'm going to tell you newcomers something that you don't hear from behind the podiums a lot. If you're on a rosy cloud, bless you. But grab hold of somebody who knows this program inside and out and go by the big book. Because somewhere down the line in sobriety, you've got to be prepared when your world falls out from underneath you. And there ain't nothing left. And there's nobody left. And you don't know whether you're coming or going. And that had happened to me. It is a real mind boggler. When you've got six to eight years of sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and suicide becomes a viable option again. See, I had gotten some of that egotism back. And self-pride wouldn't let me go out and drink. But the pain wouldn't let me go on living either. If somebody ever tells you suicide's not a viable option, tell them to come talk to me. See, when my life was so unmanageable and I went to drink to make it manageable, I had three options. I could drink and make it manageable. I could do something about it, else change my way of life. Or I could commit suicide. I chose to drink. When it was, the drink couldn't hold it anymore, I had two options left. I could either do something about the pain or I could commit suicide. And it was a viable option. I would not hurt anymore. Those options came back in sobriety. Here I am, someone who is supposedly working this program. Someone who supposedly knows what they're doing. I sponsor people. I can't be this crazy. I can't be out to lunch. I know what the big book says. I do what I'm told. But if I could have gotten my hands on a gun, there were many a days I would have blown my brains out because the pain was so great I couldn't go on. So I did the next best thing for an alcoholic who's too proud to go drink. I hid inside myself. I hid inside my pain. I hid inside Alcoholics Anonymous. How are you doing, Bonnie? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm making 90 meetings in 90 days, just like they said before. The depression will go away in a while. Well, it didn't go away. And I kept looking for that one person, that one person who I could connect with that could say, I understand that you're hurting. But there is a solution. That chapter, There is a Solution in the Big Book, is for alcoholics. It doesn't mean just drinking alcoholics. It doesn't mean just newcomers. That chapter means there is a solution for those of us who forget to practice this program. I heard a speaker here two years ago. That speaker kept getting thrown back in my life and thrown back in my life. And finally at the point of where I was ready to throw up my hands and say it's over with. I can't go on anymore. I can't do this. I give up completely. I heard that speaker one more time. Now you've got to remember I was trying all these different programs around. And then I was trying none of them. And then I wasn't doing anything. And then I was hiding in AA. I cannot tell you anything that speaker said except one phrase. I try to practice these principles in all my affairs and work this program in every aspect of my life. And when I do that, then it's okay. And the light bulb went on. 
You know, it tells me practice these principles in all my affairs. If I'm practicing these principles in all my affairs as an alcoholic, then I should be able to deal with living with a recovering spouse. If I practice these principles in all my affairs, I should be able to deal with certain aspects of raising children. And on and on and on and on. So I went to this person and I said, I need a sponsor. This is where I am. This is what's going on. That person didn't say yes. That person said, let me send you some things. Now I got a whole pamphlet full of stuff. This is what I expect out of people I sponsor. Somebody wanted me to do something. I'm not a newcomer here, you know. I don't have to do this. Yes, you do. How badly do you want what I have? Real bad. I want that solid marriage. I want that gleam in the eye. I want the smile on the face. I want the peace of mind. I don't want the pain anymore. And I once again, at eight years sobriety, eight and a half, became willing to do what is ever necessary to get to that goal, to get to where that person was in sobriety. And I'd like to tell you that has been an easy road. It has not. What I had to do was go back to the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous and start from the beginning. I did another four-step inventory and dealt with all the garbage that I'd never dealt with before. That I had to trust one person, one person with every bit of me. Now, even in sobriety, with a sponsor, that's not easy. And when I was working on that four-step inventory, I reached a point. And I let that inventory sit for like four days, and I finally called up my sponsor and I said, I can't do this. I can't go any further. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. I don't even know how I got through that aspect. You see, during that last period, this few years, last years of sobriety, I had buried a husband with cancer. I had been locked in a home, basically, for six months and one day with a man who was recovering in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous and dying, and he knew it. And we carried on conversations. I didn't make meetings. My meetings were with this person. You know, I had to rely on my higher power and get out of this depression. And I had to deal with that in my four-step inventory. And it wasn't until just recently that I said, I, I told my sponsor, I don't know why I had to go through that. But you see, the one thing I finally learned was this program of Alcoholics Anonymous is based on getting out of me and getting into somebody else. And when I took care of that husband, when I washed him and I fed him and I bathed him, and I talked to him, I forgot about poor Bonnie Karen. I forgot about the poor me's because I was giving me to somebody else. And that's called for me cleaning drawers. I have a friend in Illinois who wrote me one time. And I said, she said, call me. So I called her and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm cleaning out drawers. And I said, what do you mean you're cleaning out drawers? And she said, you know, everybody's got that one drawer in the kitchen or the bedroom. When you clean house, or for you men it may be in your workshop, and you get this one little, you clean out all the drawers and the cupboards and they're real neat. And all of a sudden, you find this one bolt. And you really don't want to go put this bolt up. Oh, why should I? I throw it back in the drawer. Pretty soon you find something else, you throw it back in the drawer. You don't really clean out that drawer. Well, my sobriety was kind of like that. 
you know, I cleaned out all this stuff, but there was still this one little thing that I left in that drawer, that one little thing that wouldn't matter, that one little thing that I didn't want to share with anybody, that one little thing I couldn't face. And I said, why are you telling me this? And she says, I don't know, I just need to tell somebody. And I said, she and I share the same sponsor. And the fact was, she didn't want to tell her sponsor what was going on because it was my sponsor, and she knew that somehow we'd both end up catching heck for it. What ended up happened was, neither of us caught heck for it, and both of us got rid of all this pain. I'm too tired to go work with other alcoholics, and I don't know what to do. And I called her up, and I said, don't find another alcoholic. If you don't have time to go down to the treatment centers or go down on the corners and pull a drunk in out of the bar, go open the door for somebody. Go give of yourself to somebody else, whatever it takes, just a little bit. I was laughing tonight while they read how it works. And I thought back the first time I heard those steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought, what a crock of garbage. How can 12 little steps change everything? Well, those 12 little steps don't actually change everything. Those 12 little steps are a tool I use to change my Karen. See, my disease is threefold. It's physical, it's mental, and it's spiritual. If you have 30 days sobriety, if you have 30 days in here without drinking, physically wise, you are as sober as I am here standing before you with almost 10 years. That's not the part I have to worry about. The part I was having problem was with the spiritual. See, I got the mental straightened out. Doctors told me what I could expect and how to deal with it and how to work around it. They told me that there would be obsessions. And I dealt with all of that. But what I didn't deal with was the spiritual. Now, I'm not going to preach God to all of you. I'm not going to preach religion to any of you. To me, there's a big difference. There's a whole lot of religious people who aren't spiritual. And there's a whole lot of spiritual people who aren't religious. And this program is based on spirituality. And it took me a long time. I kept saying, okay, okay, it's based on spirituality. What is spirituality? Somebody give me a definition. You tell me I don't have to believe in the same God, the same way, the same thing I had when I was growing up. That spirituality isn't the spirituality we're talking about. Wait, what is it? I finally found somebody to tell me. My sponsor showed it to me out of the big book. Spirituality for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is service to others and giving to others. Giving of yourself, expecting nothing in return. And if you think that's easy... That's one of the hardest things I have to practice. It's real hard to do something for somebody you're mad at. Try it. You don't stay mad very long. It's real hard to give of yourself when you don't want to deal with that. That's part of amends. When I went to make my amends list, I had to go back and make amends somehow to this first husband. And I couldn't. I didn't know how. And I came to hear that amends wasn't saying I'm sorry. And amends is a fix-it. You broke it, baby. You go out and fix it somehow. One way or the other. And I did. I fixed it where it hurt the worst for me. I did it in a monetary manner. I did something for somebody else in that person's name. 
in a monetary fashion. And you know something? The hate and the resentment and the hurt from that accident went away. It didn't go away overnight. I felt better after I sent that check out. But when I sat back and looked at it just recently, there's no hate and animosity there. And that's a good feeling because I've lived with that for over 10 years. Now, I'm not going to go back and, and dig up all of that with him ever again. That's dealt with. And I don't like to make amends. Because that means I have to go to somebody or do something and put myself on the line. And I don't like being on the line. See, I don't like being an alcoholic. I'll admit to it. I'll accept it. And I'll work at getting better. And see, I don't have to work at not drinking. I don't drink today. What I have to keep working at is that spirituality. That giving of me to somebody else. Whether it be in a smile, or like I said, holding the door for somebody, or taking five minutes to listen to a kid who wants to tell you what happened in school that day. Picking up a shell off the beach and handing it to a small child. I love to watch children. And I'm glad that God gave me the chance to become a small child again. Where my relationship with my sponsor is. See, I learn from my sponsor and I feel a little teachable. They may not agree with that at times, but I'm like that little child. Give me something. Give me a gleam of this program working in my own life, and I've had a benefit for the day. Makes the whole day better. Now, those of you who thought you were going to get real lucky tonight and hear the story of St. Doug, you're out of luck. See, I'm married to this gentleman who does the taping. But I don't know about his drinking. We've only been married two years. We met in this program. We married in this program. I will tell you this. Do I work this program in the marriage every day of my life to the best of my ability? Do I work this program every day of my life to the best of my ability with my children? With my friends? Probably not as much as I should. Some days I'm great at it. Some days I fall very, very short. And that's not because I'm an alcoholic. That's because I'm human. Do I turn everything over to God? No. You see, God, if, if, if I have a problem with my family, I'm not going to turn them over to God. God will give them right back to me and say, man, you deal with them. I don't want to mess with them right now. They're your problem, sweetheart. You deal with it. There's a place in our big book that tells me that what I do is I get up for the day. And I say, okay, God, here I am today. And I go about doing my do. I do what I have to do that day to the best of my ability, the way I can. And I leave the outcome of that day up to God. You see, if I have $1,200 worth of hot checks out there, I can't turn them over to God. God ain't going to deal with $1,200 worth of hot checks. I mean... God has all the cash he needs, but he hasn't let me win the lottery yet, you know, or anything like that. He expects me to do something about it and let the outcome be up to him. So I go about my business during the day, doing the best I can, sometimes working with another alcoholic, sometimes just working with another person. And when I lay down in bed at night, I try to make a list up here in my head 
and if the sheet balances out pretty good, then I've done okay for that day. I still get that feeling that sometimes there's no soul. You see, when I came into this program, I wasn't morally bankrupt. I wasn't even sure I had any morals left. I knew I didn't have any concept of God left. And I sure didn't like me very much at all. And I'd like to tell you that I've forgiven myself for everything I've ever done, but that's not true. And I don't buy the part that says you have to love and forgive yourself first before you can forgive anybody else. You see, it was easy for me to forgive a lot of people a lot of things, but I still couldn't forgive myself of some things. But I work on it to the best of my ability. Did I like having to go back and start over from the beginning? No. Do I appreciate it? Now, yes. Now, Frida was telling you that I tried to run away. That's not quite true. You see, I got real nervous about being up here. The last time I ever talked before a group this size, I fell out of my shoes. Now, some of you don't go back far enough or you weren't racy enough or whatever to know Frederick the Hollywood. They used to have these six-inch stiletto heels. Now, they've got me on a little box here because if I step off, you can't see me behind this podium. So I used to wear these six-inch stiletto heels, and I was walking across this stage in West Virginia, and it was an old stage, and the boards had separated. Now, the reason I was in those was because the person that was supposed to talk that night didn't show up. They were fogged in. So I had to switch places. And my heel caught in one of those boards that had separated, and I landed flat on my keister on the floor. Now, that's very ego-deflating. And I thought, I can never do this again. And I did it again. I got up in front of people, no problem. You see, I haven't been in front of a lot of you for a long time because I walked into a meeting to speak one night. And the chairman took me aside. And I was told, well, you don't tell anybody here what they have to say. But in this meeting, we don't like to talk about the steps. And in this meeting, we really don't like to hear about the traditions. We like to be entertained a little bit. And my mind's going 90 miles an hour. What am I going to entertain these people with? Because some of the things I did while I was drinking is absolutely nobody's business. And then the kicker was, oh, don't mention God. You may scare off the newcomers. And I grabbed my purse and said, don't mention my name. I'm out of here. Go find yourself another speaker. I went home and said, I'll never talk in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting again. Somewhere along the line, we've lost the program. Somewhere along the line, we've lost all the old timers. The ones who, when you go into a meeting and they say, I want to talk about separation tonight. And the old timer would say, wait a minute, we talk about alcohol here. We talk about our feelings, our hurts in respect to alcohol. I felt we had lost the old timers who would stand up and say, don't screw with my first 164 pages of this big book. It's my lifeline. Don't change it. It was here for me. Leave it for my kids. Because you see, at that point, I had a kid who was ready for this program. I wanted that child to find what I had found. And thank God that child did. And that child picked up a three-year chip on the day I got married to Douglas. And I don't know which was more pleasure, seeing Douglas give her that three-year chip or getting him for a husband. 
but I didn't know where it had gone. And I was going to be blessed if I would get up and tell you people that everything was fine and rosy and everything else in sobriety because it wasn't. In sobriety, I got divorced. I lost my children. I got my children back. I had a husband die of cancer. In sobriety, I faced criminal charges. It took two years before I could stand before a judge and hear those blessed words. All charges dropped, case dismissed. That was in sobriety. I went through the first part of it alone. The second part I didn't because I had a sponsor. I didn't go nuts. I didn't drink. I went a little crazy some days. But I didn't mess with the first 164 pages of the big book. Now the girls I sponsor call me a big book thumper. I've been called a granola lady. I've been called a lot of things in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I never have been called a drunk. And that's nice. Now I'm not going to say the way I do the program of Alcoholics Anonymous will work for you. I don't know that it would. I do know that what I was floundering with, and I mean floundering, was not working for me. I ended up going out of state for a long distance sponsor because I had to find what I needed. I had to find those basics again. And please, old timers out there, I know that the meetings get smoky. I know that the language gets bad. And having worked with sailors for a long time, I can outswear a lot of them. And I was told when I came into this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I cleaned up the body, I cleaned up the mouth, and then I cleaned up the insides. Sometimes the mouth still gets a little out of hand. Old habits die hard. It takes practice to break them as well as to make them. Please, old timers, don't quit going to those meetings. Don't quit preaching the first 164 pages because I'm in those meetings and I still need to hear it. And when the bottom falls out of my life again somewhere down the line, and it very easily may, I want to know that you're there with that program to put it right underneath me again. I don't want to have to go digging around looking for you too hard. You know, there's more people like me out there. Some of them just don't have the advantage of standing behind this microphone and saying, we need you. We need the big book thumpers. We need to go back to basics because I need to stay sober and sane. Sanity returned to me. And I don't credit me with getting sane again. And I may get called on the carpet for this, and I don't care. I credit my sponsor with my sanity right now. Because that person loved me enough to take me through the big book, the first 164 pages, those steps, and walk with me every step of the way and show me how I could become sane again. How I could quit hurting. See, I didn't do that. I'm real big on sponsorship. I owe this program my life. I work this program. But unless I had a sponsor who loved me enough and cared enough about this program to do that for me, I never would have been able to find it. I'm not going to say that your program's wrong. I can't do that. I'm not going to say that my program's right. It's right for me. And the way I work it is right for me. And if I've offended you, I really didn't mean to. I'm up here to tell you what it's like for Bonnie Karen. I'm clean outside. 
I didn't eat in this tonight. By the way, there's a standard joke in the state of Maryland. You can dress me up. Just don't take me out to eat and what you want me to appear in because I wear half of it home. I've had some old-timers in Maryland threaten to buy me a bib. I'm clean. I work hard at my program. I'm sane. God has restored me to sanity. I work hard at service work, whether it's with an alcohol, another alcoholic or another pro, uh, program person, or whether it's just another person in the street. I try to get rid of all the pain by doing for somebody else. I wallow in it sometimes. I allow myself my self-pity. I allow myself my poor me. But when I'm ready to get out of it, I go do something for somebody else. Because it's real hard to wallow in that self-pity when you're doing something for somebody else. If I haven't said anything tonight that means anything to anybody, that's okay. I got real nervous and I was told I'm up here for one person. Not necessarily me. There may be one person out there who needed, like I did that night, I heard my sponsor, one fragment of what I said. If you could have gotten anything out of what I said tonight, fine. I'm glad. If you think I'm a real jerk, that's okay too. If you didn't get anything, if you cannot relate, if you don't understand about the pain that I've talked about, that's all right too. I only want you to hear one thing from me if you've got nothing else out of this. I want you to pay real close attention to what I'm about to say. And I want you to try to understand this, if nothing else. And this is found in page 570 of our big book. There is a principle which is bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Please do not judge all of Alcoholics Anonymous on me. Please do not hold contempt for our program if you're a newcomer, if you do not like what I've said. Please do not have contempt prior to investigation. Thank you.